I got my first guitar when I was in the sixth grade. And it was toward the end of that very same year I also experienced my first heartbreak. So um, I couldn't have planned it any better. That red and white Stratocaster knockoff became the on-ramp for what would become a decade of teenage angst. Learning how to play the guitar gave me an outlet. If I was feeling something, I wrote about it, and if I couldn't capture what I was feeling, I'd listen to songs that did. Now, when I was around 16 or 17, I started attending church, and by God's grace, the Lord saved me. Now, some of the things I remember about those early years of my faith, my faith was, first, the difference between the songs we sang at church and the songs I typically listened to and would write. I wrote and listened to mostly sad, angry, frustrated songs. The second thing I remember was how happy everybody was on Sunday mornings. Everybody's response to how are you was along the lines of, I'm doing great, praise the Lord, or God is good, which doesn't even really answer the question, um, but that's fine. And what I learned from this experience was that being a Christian meant being happy. It meant that we should always be doing great and we should always have a smile on our face. Now, at first, I just thought that maybe this is what happens as you grow in your faith. But there was something that really didn't sit right with me. Now, I'm not a very easily convinced individual. Some have called me a contrarian. I like to pull on loose threads to see what will happen, so I started pulling. The longer I walked with Jesus the more I realized that the bubblegum pop worship music and the praise the Lord guys who never seemed to feel anything but happiness were simply not reflective of the human experience. I came to joyfully accept my sadness and at times even my depression, and I learned that it did not reflect poorly on who God was. Being sad, angry, or frustrated does not make us bad witnesses for Jesus. I'm going to say that again because I think it's that important that we wrap our minds around that. Being sad, angry, or frustrated does not make us bad witnesses for Jesus. But rather, feeling our way across the spectrum of emotions is a reality that every single individual, whether they be a Christian or not, experiences. Now, please do not hear what I'm not saying. I believe wholeheartedly that there is a joy and a peace that accompanies our walk with Jesus. But when two-thirds of the book of Psalms are laments, we are, by God's grace, and I, and I can't emphasize that enough, we are, by God's grace, forced to welcome these feelings of sadness, frustration, anger, and even despondency. That means, and this is what I love when this happens, that both experience and scripture teach us that sadness, sorrow, and lament are a part of what it means to be human. But it's also a part of what it means to be divine. And that's where we start to feel a little uncomfortable. Old Testament scholar Doug Green argues that while the Psalms are written by individuals, they also reflect the ideal picture of what it looks like to be the people of God. And I have a slide for this to paraphrase his words. While it is David who is praying the psalm, the David of the psalms is a picture of the ideal king and the ideal Israelite. Therefore, if the ideal Israelite laments, then lament is a necessary element 
in the life of the righteous and thus a necessary part of the ideal, of the calling of the ideal Israelite and king. C.S. Lewis says it like this, and I have a slide for this as well. Two figures meet us in the Psalms, that of the sufferer and that of the conquering and liberating king. The sufferer was generally identified with the whole nation, Israel itself, and the king was the successor of David, the coming Messiah. Our Lord identified himself with both characters. You tracking with this? The ideal and the eschatological come together in the book of Psalms, making the Psalter the story of Christ, which means it's the story of us who are united to him by faith. In other words, as we work our way through one of the deepest cries of lament in the Bible here in Psalm 13, we are not only reflecting on the words of the historical David, but also on the very heart of King Jesus, who is the place where the story of David was always heading, a story which all of us are caught up into by faith, which means that my teenage angst was not only appropriate, but good. And that sadness and lament do not tarnish, tarnish the image of Christ, but are simply another way in which we show the world what God is like. It's okay to not be okay. That's what the scriptures teach us. And there's something so relieving about that, that we don't have to walk around and pretend as though everything is going swimmingly. Because more often than not, we are either going through something really difficult or someone really close to us is going through something really difficult. And God says, you're allowed to be angry, frustrated, and sad by that. And I want you to tell me. And I want you to tell me. Now, hopefully, this morning, there's, there's relief. Hopefully this morning, we're invited to dig deeper into our relationship with God by scratching at that a little bit more than maybe we have previously. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 13. The psalm begins with the superscript, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Now, at its most basic understanding, this psalm was written to be sung by the people of God in a worship setting, right? To the choir master or to the worship director, to the song leader, however you want to interpret that. It's a worship song. Now, the reason I bring that up and the reason I believe it's important is that once again, what is being highlighted for us is the fact that lament and sadness are not only part of the human experience, but they are biblically informed ways in which we are called to approach God and more worship him. You guys catch that? Because that's another part that's really important. Not only are we called to approach God with our pain, with our anxiety, with our depression, with all of our feelings, but that when we do, we're actually worshiping him. That when we sit in, in, our, in our rooms, in our cars, wherever we might be, walking alone, and, and we're, 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 we're yelling at God, telling him of all the things that we're frustrated by, God says, that is worship. You're praising me. You tracking? We all here? This is good. All right, let's keep going. Now, the refrain that is repeated four times in these first two verses is, how long? How long? How long? How long? How long? The literal Hebrew reads, until where? 
And the Greek translation is until when. A good friend of mine, he pastors up in North Brunswick, he made this observation. The psalmist is not only asking when this suffering will end, but he's also asking where this suffering is taking him. Until where? In other words, what's the point of all this? To where is this path of pain and sorrow leading me? What's the goal? Maybe another way to say it would be, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? Where is this all going? What is the point? I'm sure all of you are really happy you came this morning for a nice encouraging word. Another thing we notice is who the psalmist is addressing. How long, O Lord? That word Lord, it shows up three times in the psalm, and it's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Why is that important? Because as David enters into this conversation with God, he's coming as one who is in a covenant relationship with him. Promises have been made. There's a bond of fellowship between these two parties. This is not a casual encounter. By invoking this covenantal name, there is a sense in which God is reminding God of those, where David is reminding God of those very promises. Right? You catch that? When, when, we, when, when, when the Old Testament uses that word Yahweh, there's so much attached to that word. Yahweh is the one who brought Israel out of Egypt. Yahweh is the one who gave the Ten Commandments, who made that covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai. Yahweh is the one that made all of these promises throughout the Old Testament. And David is saying, that's the God I'm talking to right now, Lord. That God, the one who made promises, are you going to show up? Are you going to show up? As I was wrestling through this text, I couldn't help but think of Jesus' lament in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he cries out in anguish, my father, what's he doing there? He's reminding God of their relationship. And not only is he reminding God of the relationship he has with him, but he's also reminding us. Remember, this is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our father, our father. We don't approach God as some distant divinity. We come to him as his kids. Our cries of sorrow and pain are the sort that come from a relationship. And dare I say that Father provides an even deeper communion than Yahweh ever did. Now, it's not that the Old Testament never refers to God as Father. There are a handful of times, but the primary way Jesus teaches us to relate to God is as a child relates to their dad. That is the depth of intimacy that we are offered. That's good news. That's good news. If we weren't sure, there is good news here. So when we take the words of David and place them upon our lips, they are words that have passed down from generation to generation, and they have been transformed and reapplied by the ideal Israelite, King Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection, so that now our anguish and sorrow is the sort that is expressed and communicated in the same way your kids cry out to you when they wake up from a nightmare, scrape their knee at the park, or experience their first breakup. Mom, Dad, how long? It hurts so much. Please just make it stop. Please just make it stop. And, and 
And there are times as parents where we can't make it stop. And so what do we do? We sit with our kids. Now, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying that God can't make it stop, but there are plenty of times where he doesn't make it stop. And you know what what he does, though? He sits with his kids. He hears them. He reminds us of the promises, especially if we're using this book to work through those laments. We're reminded of the promises as we sit with God. Please just make it stop. I think that captures the emotional depth of what this psalm is getting at. And what is it that is causing all of this pain to the psalmist? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He feels as though God has forgotten him, as though God has hidden himself. And I'm intentionally using that word feels right now, right? That's something that we get nervous about, especially as like reformed folk. We don't really like to mess with feelings. We're like, no, no, no. We don't feel. We just know, right? But but the psalm says, nah, nah, that's actually not true. He feels as though God has forgotten him, as though God has hidden himself. All of us have been in this space before. And if you've claimed you've never experienced this, I'm not sure I believe you. I'm not buying what you're selling. Jesus himself felt this on the cross when he cried out through the lips of the psalmist, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? St. John of the Cross, a 16th century priest, referred to this as the dark night of the soul. Those times in our life when God feels distant. Verse 2 takes our gaze inward. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? To phrase this differently, Father in heaven, I'm racking my brain here. I feel like I'm arguing and fighting with myself. What's the point of this pain? It's consuming my entire day. All my thoughts are wrapped up in this. Please just make it stop. How many of you have had days like this? Where the pain, whether it's emotional, spiritual, physical, relational, are just all-consuming. And you're just racking your brain. You're going over it over and over and over again in your minds. And you're just wondering, like, why, Lord, why? And, and, it's, and it's affecting every single facet of your day. Like, you can't get your work done. You can't engage your kids properly. You can't, you know, you can't do anything other than just be frustrated and angry and tired. And, and if, if no one says yes, again, you're lying. Now, whatever it is that you have gone through, are presently going through, or will one day go through, the confusion you feel, the frustration, the anger, and even the doubt, it does not make you crazy, it does not make you unholy, and it does not offend God to feel this way and to tell him about it. You don't have to pretend that everything is okay. One theologian says it like this, um, and I have a slide for this, um, Ben Meyer. He says, in the evangelical West, smiling has become a moral imperative. The smile is regarded as the objective externalization of a well-ordered life. Sadness is a moral failure. Where evangelical churches theologize happiness and ritualize the smile, sad believers are spiritually ostracized. 
Sadness is the scarlet letter of the contemporary church, embroidered proof of a person's spiritual failure. But scripture disagrees. Both the Psalms and Jesus tell us that it's okay to not be okay. To take it even further, there's something spiritual and even godly about lamenting and being in anguish over the pain and sadness that we experience in this world. I want to make an observation. A lament is different than a confession of sin. They're different. Both those things probably cause us pain spiritually, but a lament is, is not something that we're crying out because of something I did. It's we're crying out because we're looking around the world and we're frustrated by it, we're angered by it. We're looking at our own personal experiences and, 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 and the, the, the life situations that we're walking through and we're frustrated and angered by it. Maybe it's a sickness, maybe it's a long-term illness, maybe it's a relational failure. Whatever the case may be, we're crying out to God, really? Again? Why? That's different than when we sin and we're saying, God, forgive me. Both are necessary. Both break our hearts. And so they're forms of lament. But what we're dealing with today, specifically, is that, that cry of the heart when we're going through the, those depths of darkness, those, those valleys of the shadow of death that all of us have walked through before. Now, does some of this apply to confession of sin 100%? But we're dealing specifically with, with that sort of category. David doesn't stop, though. Look at what he says in verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Verse 4, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. The psalmist demands three things from the Lord his God. And I say demand because all three verbs are imperatives. Consider me, answer me, light up my eyes. Consider me. That's better translated as look at me. Right? Consider me just feels nicer, right? So, so it's in all of our Bibles. But what the psalmist is really saying is like, look at me, God. Look. Look at me. He's demanding the attention of God. One commentator says that the initial verb summons Yahweh to notice the plight of the petitioner. If Yahweh notices, then Yahweh might answer. The next demand he makes is, answer me. Look at me and answer me. Have you ever done that? Have you ever, have you ever felt this way? Look at me, God. Answer my prayers. I imagine that the psalmist is yelling at God right now demanding his attention, pleading with him to at least hear his pain. The requests build, not build. Not only does the psalmist feel alone in his pain, but he feels as though he's going to die if God doesn't jump in. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Another way to say that, God, I'm dying here. I'm dying here, God. I'm, I'm losing it. I can't do it anymore. And, and then check out what happens. There's even shame that accompanies his distress. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. In other words, what are they all going to think of me? I'll be made a fool. You'll be made a fool. My reputation will be tarnished. Now, maybe we don't have enemies in the same way that David did. I would imagine that we don't have people chasing us through the wilderness trying to kill us. If you do... You should call 911. 
But that's not what we're dealing with right now. But we all have people in our lives who, when we are going through things, hard things, whatever they might be, maybe they doubt what you're going through. Maybe they think you're being dramatic. Maybe they make you feel like an idiot for feeling the way you feel. Or maybe they just make you feel crazy, right? Like that's that term, gaslighting. They make you feel like you're nuts for feeling the way you do. If we scratch at all of this a little bit, we start to see what's hidden below the surface of these demands. God, if you are everything the Bible claims you are, if you're even a fraction of what the Bible claims you are, then why aren't you doing anything? You're all-knowing, you're all-powerful, all-loving, gracious, and merciful, abounding in faithfulness, and I'm dying here. Don't you see what's going on? Right? Scratch at this a bit. The psalmist is experiencing doubt. The psalmist is experiencing doubt. And, and maybe in your walk with Jesus, for however long you've been walking with him, maybe you felt that, that every time there was a moment of doubt in your life, that God was looking at you like, like mad at you, right? Like, I can't believe you doubted me. Right? I'm, I'm reminded of, of, of Hook, right? The scene when, when he finally gets Peter Pan back and, and, then, and everyone's cheering and then he cries out, who doubted me? Right? Does that not land for anyone? Daniel, it lands for you. Come on, right? right? That's not, God's not doing that. Like, he's not, this is not, we, we have a false picture of who God is. If we think that every time we're wrestling with our faith, God is sitting there like, really? How dare you? That's just not our God. It's not our God. That is not what the Bible teaches us about who God is. But we feel that sometimes. We feel that. We feel as though God's mad at us. But, but he's not. He's not. He's not. If you are his child bought by the precious blood of Jesus, no, no, no. He's okay with hearing your doubts. Guess what? He can take it. He's God. He can handle it. Like throw it on him. Let him know all of it. Because you know what happens when you tell God your doubts? To let you in on a little secret, you're praying. Right? Like... You're actually engaging the relationship. You're actually sitting with God as you share with him your doubts. Right? There's something remarkable there. It's kind of like for, for the parents in the room, like if, if your kids are mad at you and they go up in their room and they don't talk to you, right? that's harder than if they tell you they're mad at you, if they have that conversation with you, because at least now they're engaging in the relationship. They're in, right? They're still a part of the family. When they retreat... Now there's a breakage. Now there's a rift. But no, I would rather have my kids tell me all the ways they're disappointed in me than go sit in their room far away from me and, and, and bury their head in whatever it is they're going to bury their head in. Right? We want that relationship to continue. And that's what God is pleading with. It's like, come, tell it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. And it's almost, like, it's almost like a little trick he's playing on us. He's like, yeah, yeah, tell me all the ways you feel. And little did you know that you're just sitting here with me. You're just praying, you're just hanging out with me, and, and, and as you tell me all your doubts, guess what? I'm just going to listen to them. I'm going to hear them because, because I can take it. And, and the reality is, is we all have felt those doubts before. We all have felt as though God doesn't see, and, and if he does see, then maybe he doesn't care. Now, it's really easy, 
and we have a tendency to do this, to respond to that sort of pain with, with a trite and cliche word about God's faithfulness and how he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And all of that is true. But sometimes, and this is what I love about the Psalms of Lament, we need to feel our way through the pain before we get to the other side. Sometimes we need to just feel what we're feeling. But keep talking to God about it. Keep talking to God about it. And, and, and to add on to this, keep talking to your trusted brothers and sisters about it. Let them know what you're feeling. Because then they can, can be praying for you as you walk through that valley of the shadow of death. Right, we had this little debate, um, not a debate, a little, little discussion this past week. Um, the elders and the wives were, were together, and we were, we were wrestling with this idea, does, does, God, does prayer change things, Right? And, and sometimes, especially for us reform folk, right, like who, who have a very high view of the sovereignty of God, which is a beautiful thing, and I'm not going to discount that, we, we wrestle with that. We think like, oh, maybe God can't change things. But, but Scripture teaches us that, that prayer does, in fact, change things, that it moves the hand of God. Now, how that works in, in, in the, the, the eternal sort of understanding of God's sovereignty and, and the will that he has given us to, to exercise freely, like, I don't 100% know. I'm not, you know, and, and, and people who say they do know, I don't think they do. Um, because God's sovereignty and human responsibility is, is one of those mysteries that we're just never going to fully wrap our minds around until we enter into glory. And even then, maybe he might not tell. I don't know, maybe. But we will see fully in that day. But the point is, is that Scripture teaches us that when we pray, God listens and it moves the heart of God. It does. I don't know how that works. But that is the story of Scripture. And so we have to wrestle with that. Now, this past week, to share a little personal sort of story, I've been wrestling with God a bit, lamenting, complaining, telling him all the ways that I felt like he was failing me. I did it formally, working my way through a written lament, allowing the words of those who have gone before to guide me. And then I did it informally, spontaneously, I had a few things come up this week and in the past few weeks that have just been hard. And I hit a point where I was just so frustrated that I started yelling at God. I was driving, just unloading all of my anger, sadness, and frustration. And you know what he did? He listened. Now, nothing has dramatically changed about any of those circumstances. But something did happen, and I mentioned this before. I talked to God. I prayed. I worshipped. Not the happy, clappy sort of worship that might make us smile. Maybe for some of us, I, I tend to smile at sadness. But, but it was worship nonetheless. In the midst of my distress, my frustration, because of the relationship that God has cultivated with me over the last 20 plus years, I stormed into his presence and I unloaded. And as a result, like I said, nothing changed. Nothing changed. I'm still frustrated. I'm still having a rough few weeks. I'm still like, you know, like tired and, and not in the mood to really deal with anybody. Like no offense to anyone in this room. It has nothing to do with you. It's really something that I'm working through, right? But I was drawn into a deeper communion with God. I was. My relationship with Jesus was deepened as a result of it. 
and suffering and then telling God about it, it has a way of doing that for us. That's actually the pattern of the New Testament. It's the pattern of the whole Bible. But, but even Jesus, even Paul says in, in the book of Romans that, that we will be glorified with Christ provided we what? Suffer with him. And if you don't know, you got to know that one because I literally say it most weeks. So we got to know that one, right? But right? Suffering actually draws us into a deeper communion with God provided we give it to God, provided we actually show up and, and give that pain and anguish to God. Right, because there's a difference between lamenting and brooding, right? Brooding's the sort of thing where we just, we just turn in on ourselves. We don't go to God with our pain. We don't go to our brothers and sisters with our pain. We just sit there and get angry. And, and we just get angry at the situations and never once engage God. Now, Lord willing, that that sort of thing leads us to a conversation or multiple conversations with God. But we got to get there, right? We got to get onto our knees and have that conversation with our Lord, with our Father, with our Dad. That has to happen. That has to be where we are taken. But it's more. It's more than, than just what it does for me. We talked about how the Psalms are written by individuals. And this one was written by David. But when we zoom out, this is scripture. This is the word of God, which means that it was inspired by God. And the one who the New Testament calls the word, Jesus, who was in the beginning with God, who was God, he is also the one who on our behalf walked through the valley of the shadow of death, who cried out to his father because he too, when he looked to the heavens as he hung on the cross, he couldn't find him couldn't find him. He's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he hung on that cross? Like, like, Father, where are you? I'm here. I'm dying here. Literally, I'm dying here. Where are you? He wept over how lost his people were. He wept at the reality of death, at how corrupt and broken his good creation had become. And so it's not just the fact that God hears our cries, but those cries the pain and distress we experience on this side of glory. And this is so important. Hear what I'm saying. It is how we participate, how we share together in the life, death, and burial of our king. A king who understands our suffering because he went through it. When we suffer and when we lament over our pain, we are sharing in the sufferings of King Jesus. There's something sacramental about it, that we receive God's grace in the midst of that pain. And it's one of the only places where we receive that sort of grace, that sort of blessing. Most of you experience this. Most of you know this. When things are going well, you're probably not spending all that much time on your knees. And if you are, it's probably some of those prayers that you just kind of read your devotional, your, your Spurgeon morning and evening, which is a beautiful devotional. I love it. But like, right, but it's like we don't have that depth of relationship when things are going swimmingly. We just don't because we're wired to experience blessing 
in the midst of pain, right? Remember the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the, the, the I, mean, I don't know, you know the Beatitudes, whatever. I, I can't remember them all. But like, it's all like bad things, at least how the world pictures bad. And, and, and God says like, oh, no, 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 these are, these are blessings. And so I don't know why God has structured the universe this way, but it is the way in which it is structured. That pain, suffering, loss lead to deeper communion with God when we engage God about it. You tracking with that? And so, to quote one of my favorite artists, when we cry out, Jesus, where are you? His response is, I'm right beside you. I feel what you feel. And I'm here to hold you when death is too real. You know I died too. I was terrified. I gave myself before you. I was crucified because I love you, child. That is good news, Redeemer Fellowship. That is really good news. And this is how the psalmist responds. In verses 5 through 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now before we jump to praise, and this is how the majority of laments are structured. They end in praise, in thanksgiving. There's an important lesson there. We also have to acknowledge, though, that the distance between verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 6, it's not the same for everyone. Some of you are neck deep in verses 1 through 4. Even as I speak these words, you're asking God, how long? What's the point? Where is this all taking me? While some of you are on the way to praise and thanksgiving. What is important to notice this is so important, is that laments teach us that we won't remain in darkness. We won't remain in darkness. Now, the reason I phrased it like this is important. I could have said that we can't remain in darkness, but that puts the responsibility on us to simply make ourselves feel happy again. But I don't believe that's how it works. I believe because this is what scripture teaches, that we have to keep showing up day after day, minute by minute, and that God is going to use that faithfulness to reveal to us his faithfulness. Jacob wrestled with God until God relented and until God blessed him. That's what lamenting is. We keep wrestling until we remember and are convinced of what it says in verses five through six, until we trust in the hesed love of God, that's the covenant faithfulness word, the word that describes the loyalty of God, the goodness of God, his loving kindness, his nearness, his obligation to us. We keep wrestling until we trust in that. We keep wrestling until our hearts begin to rejoice in God's salvation again. In the words of King David, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. But truth be told, some of us aren't experiencing the joy of God's salvation right now. And God's not sitting here saying, well, you better start experiencing it. Like, get it together, bro. Why aren't you, why aren't you experiencing the joy of my salvation? It's really good stuff. Like, no, God's not doing that. God's saying, okay, all right, keep showing up. Keep showing up. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. 
Just keep showing up. Keep telling me how horrible it is and how frustrated you are. Eventually, you're going to get to verses 5 through 6, but it might take some time. We keep wrestling until we can sing to the Lord with joy, until we remember that God has, in fact, dealt bountifully with us. We keep showing up. We keep showing up. That's really the point. We keep showing up. Sometimes when we show up, we might be having a good day. Other times, the language that passes through our lips as we're kneeling before God are words you'd be embarrassed to use in front of the people sitting next to you this morning. And you know what Scripture teaches us? It's okay to not be okay. It's okay. But the other thing that Scripture teaches us is that everything you are feeling, all the pain, all the sorrow, the sadness, the anger, and the distress, Jesus is one day going to make it all untrue. And that is the hope of the gospel, and that is the hope that fills every single drop of our tears. Pain and sorrow are not going anywhere yet. So Psalm 13 is an invitation to sit in those tears. It's an invitation to weep. But Psalm 13 is also an invitation to look beyond those tears, as God enables you to do so. Because the distance between verses 1 through 4 might be a little bit longer for you as you try to get to verses 5 through 6. But as you keep showing up, you will, what you will see is the person of Jesus, glorified, with a rag in his hand, ready to wipe away every tear. And as he reaches toward your eyes, what you'll notice on his hand is the scar from the nail that was left behind when he gave himself for you. That's good news, Redeemer Fellowship. That's such good news. So if you walk away today with anything, it's okay to not be okay and keep showing up in the presence of God. He's going to get you to verses 5 through 6. Truth be told, I am in verses 1 through 4 right now. And many of you are in verses 1 through 4 right now. Keep showing up. Keep showing up. God is faithful. I promise you, he is faithful. He's faithful. And every time you sit in his presence, you are drawn deeper and deeper into communion with him. That is so good. That is so, so good. I know a lot of what you are going through. That's both the privilege and the burden of being your pastor. I'm grateful for that privilege. I can tell you, God is going to take you through this. I don't know when. I don't know when. But he is. That's just what we see in the scriptures. And all of us have experienced it at various times in our lives. And so that's good news. And one day, every tear, guys, Every tear is going to be wiped away. All that is sad will become untrue. Jesus says, I'm making all things new.
I love that, right? That's the best. I mean, I'm going to talk a little more. Uh, every time I hear that, that, that making all things new, you know, maybe you've seen The Passion of the Christ back in the day. It was a you know, big movie, right? All, all the churches watched it back in, like, what, 2000 or 1999, whenever it was. But there's one scene. The whole movie is just, it's a lot. Um, I don't really watch it regularly. I think I've seen it maybe twice, and that, that's maybe one and a half times too many. Um, but there's this one scene as he's just like, as, as, as the, the actor who's portraying Jesus, he's just drenched in blood, and he's walking with the cross on his shoulder. And he looks over at, at the, the woman who's playing Mary, and he says, he says, look, Mom, I'm making all things new. And I love that because I believe that's the best scene in the movie because I think it captures exactly what the gospel is, that suffering pain, loss, and death are what make all things new. Jesus perfectly exemplified that when he rose from the dead. When he rose from the dead, what he told the world was, my death, it worked. I'm actually the guy I said I was. And he's making all things new and he's starting with each and every one of us as he pours out his spirit. And one day, that salvation will be complete. That's what we long for. That's what we hope for. And those are the tears that we cry, that one day will be wiped away. Let's go to the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we love you so much. And we thank you for what your son Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, Father. And we thank you that you are a God who's big enough and and able to handle all of our stuff, Lord God. Our anger, our doubts, our frustration, our pain, and, and even our sin, Lord God. Jesus died for our sins so that we might walk freely, that we might be made righteous, Lord. Oh God, I love you so much, and I'm so grateful. In Christ's name we pray, amen.